Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. This week is part two of my mini-series on spice trees. If you haven't listened to part one yet, then I recommend that you do that first. The stories of spice cultivation and trade are all connected, and in this second part I will be building on themes that I introduced last week. And fair warning, the history of the spice trade is rooted in European colonialism, a notoriously dark period in history. I only briefly touched on it last week, but this week I'm going to go into a little more detail, and some of these topics are uncomfortable. That being said, this week I will be covering the history of the Indonesian archipelago famously known as the Spice Islands. These islands became hugely important in the spice trade thanks primarily to two tree species, Maristica fragrans and Syzygium aromaticum, which are two of my absolutely favorite scientific names for trees. It's these two trees that we get the spices nutmeg, mace, and clove. Like cinnamon and peppercorn, these spices have been on quite a journey to end up in your kitchen. So let's talk about how these trees went from a tropical paradise to a mainstay in culinary cultures around the world. Let's start with these mythical spice islands. Where and what are they? We're heading over to Asia, specifically Southeast Asia. Between the mainland and the island continent of Australia, there is a massive archipelago or group of islands known as Indonesia. Indonesia is very big. If you were to place the country's borders over that of the United States, you would see that it stretches beyond both coasts. Now to be entirely fair, a lot of that space is water. But to get from one end of Indonesia to the other takes a lot of seafaring. So naturally, this wide-stretched nation is split into several smaller regions, separating the biggest islands like Java or some of the clusters of teeny tiny islands. Let's zoom in on one of these clusters on the far eastern end of the country. There's around a thousand islands in this region. Like I said, most are teeny tiny and not even populated, and they're situated right around the equator. This archipelago is known as the Malukas, or Maluku Islands. They've also been historically referred to as the Spice Islands. These islands, geographically speaking, are truly a tropical paradise. Turquoise waters, rich coral reefs filled with colorful fish, pristine beaches, tall mountains, and dense jungles. And it is in these jungles that we find a couple of very interesting trees. The first tree I'd like to talk about is called Maristica fragrans, otherwise known as the nutmeg tree. At some point you may have wondered the process by which humans realized that a tree could be turned into a spice, and the first step was simply having a smelly tree. The scientific name of this tree reflects this quality. Maristica stems from an ancient Greek word that means fragrant, and fragrance, believe it or not, means much the same in Latin. The common name nutmeg, after centuries of linguistic corruption, originated from the old French term noix miguet, which roughly translates to nut that smells like musk. The nutmeg tree is found in the nutmeg family, Maristicaceae, along with hundreds of other tropical jungle species. You likely won't recognize any of these other trees as none of them are really used or cultivated by humans. 
It's just one of those things where if we were in a tropical jungle together, I would point out a random tree and say, that guy's related to the tree that gives us nutmeg. And you'll say, I don't know what to do with that information. Come to think of it, I don't know what you're going to do with most of the information in this podcast. I just like talking about trees, and apparently that's enough. So, what does this tree look like? Well, it can grow to heights of around 65 feet or 20 meters. Like most tropical plants, it is a broadleaf evergreen. It's got those oblong, shiny, dark green leaves. The flowers are these small, yellow, bell-shaped fellas. Most of my listeners live in temperate parts of the world, far from the equator, and you may wonder when tropical plants flower in places that don't have a traditional spring, summer, fall, and winter. The answer is, kind of whenever they want. These trees will flower on and off throughout the year. I think there's something to do with rainy or dry periods, but without those hard-set diverse seasons, they can kind of just do whatever they want. But after those flowers are pollinated, they turn into fruits. These fruits are kind of like a lime-sized orb. The color, though, is usually shades of pale yellow or yellow-green. Kind of like the color of pears, I guess. Now, at first, they are fleshy on the outside, but as they ripen, the exterior acts like the husk of a nut, because that's essentially what it is. Inside of this fruit is a big ol' seed, and when the fruit is ripe, you can hear the nut seed rattling around, since at that point it has detached from the rest of the fruit material. And at that point, the husk starts to split open. The seed inside looks essentially like a smooth peach pit, but covered in this red, fleshy, lacy coating. Between both the seed and its coating is how we get not only nutmeg, but also mace. And unless you watch a lot of cooking shows or spend a lot of time cooking and baking, you may not be familiar with the spice known as mace. You may not even be familiar with nutmeg, so I'll start with that. The actual seed of this fruit is nutmeg. It's the musky nut. Put that nut to a zester or a grater and you've got ground nutmeg, which may be in your spice cabinet right now. My gut instinct is to always compare nutmeg to cinnamon, even though they are different spices. Like, it's got that sort of warmth to it, but somehow different. I've got the two in front of me right now. Let's give them a sniff. That was the cinnamon. Okay. My cinnamon, which is cassia cinnamon, to be specific, McCormick brand, it smells spicy and earthy. Like, I can kind of tell that it came from wood, if I really want to think about it. Nutmeg, though. Nutmeg has that earthy scent as well. (coughs) Too big a sniff. But also floral notes that make it more perfumey than spicy. Typically, there's no reason to just taste raw spice because at that level, it's really overpowering. And I wasn't going to. But for you, I'll try them. I'll see if I can distinguish some flavor. Just a little taste. Oh, I forgot that I just brushed my teeth. Shoot. You know what? The taste of cassia cinnamon is just so closely tied to big red gum that whenever I taste it, I just think, oh, the flavor profile is big red gum. <laughs> it's just, it's overpowering is what it is. It fills your mouth and it, uh, it really just, it's, it's, it really is that spicy flavor. I, I really just think of the color red <laughs> because of it. If that makes sense. Let's try the nutmeg. 
Oh, I don't have a... I didn't cleanse my palate. This is not a good idea. This is not scientific at all. Okay, so the raw nutmeg is definitely not what I would call spicy. The way that cinnamon sort of fills your mouth, this one gently coats it instead. That floral scent comes through in the flavor, and it honestly tastes kind of fresh. Like, and this is going to sound weird, like ground nutmeg is like spring soil, and ground cinnamon is like late summer soil. I don't really know what that means, but that's what my mind is telling me. They're honestly very different. The idea of replacing nutmeg with cinnamon, I think, comes from the idea that they're both brown spices that come from trees. I mean, you, you'll you see pro chefs and food bloggers suggest to use nutmeg in place of cinnamon, you know, for an elevated experience. And I have done that before. Quite frankly, it's just saying, if you're tired of cinnamon, use a different spice. <laughs> it definitely gives you a fresh sort of flavor profile to play with. Go ahead and try it. Learn what a different spice tastes like. Cinnamon is just everywhere, but maybe try something different. Mace, on the other hand, comes from that weird red coating around the seed. That stuff is dried, which turns it into a pale orange-yellow color, and sold as cut-up blades, or ground into powder like any other spice. Don't confuse the spice mace with the chemical irritant mace. They are completely different things. You know, the stuff that's like pepper spray, but upon further research, is apparently very different from pepper spray. Mace is actually a brand name. I didn't know that before today. Also, don't confuse the spice mace with the medieval weapon mace. The medieval mace is that sort of rod with a blunt crown-shaped end to it, often mixed up with mauls or flails. Uh, but this isn't my favorite medieval weapons, this is my favorite trees, so let's get back to the tree. I've never used mace in the kitchen. I might buy some between when I write the script and when I record the episode just to try it, and if you're listening to this version of the script, I did not do that. I went to my store, but they did not carry mace. So from what I've read, it's apparently a more mild version of nutmeg. I've read some articles that say the flavor is like cinnamon meets pepper, which doesn't sound mild at all. That sounds spicy. I don't think you need mace. Like, nutmeg is for people who think cinnamon isn't fancy enough for them, and this does include me. Mace is for folks who think nutmeg is still not fancy enough. I'm going to try and not get to that level, but really, it is inevitable. Oftentimes, we see these spices used in baked goods, but they really have a variety of purposes. They are very commonly used in certain Indian curries and a variety of other Indian dishes that we know to have a very rich, complex flavor profile. But they're also good for just seasoning meat for many dishes. I think I use them most as mulling spices. Come the cooler temperatures of autumn and winter, I'm awful fond of throwing some wine or apple cider on the stove and heating them up with some warm spices like cinnamon or nutmeg, or maybe even mace this year, we'll see. But another spice I'd readily use here is clove, the other tree-borne spice native to the Spice Islands. Clove comes from the clove tree, scientifically known as Syzygium aromaticum. Syzygium is the rose apple genus, from the ancient Greek meaning yoked together, in reference to its leaves and branches forming opposite of one another, like twins. There's a whopping 1,200 species in this genus, 
Some are actually grown as ornamentals, you know, like tropical houseplants. And people who live near them natively sometimes use their fruits for jams and jellies. The Syzygium genus is part of the massive and incredibly diverse myrtle family, Myrtaceae, home to almost 6,000 species, including myrtle trees, guava, and eucalyptus. Our clove tree was described by a British physician in the 1800s named Elizabeth Blackwell. She was actually the first woman in America to earn a medical degree, and paved the way for women in the medicine profession, including opening a medical school for women. She wasn't the first person to describe the clove tree, I think. I'm just using her description to give you guys an example of how people, not me, physically describe trees. Quote, The trunk of this tree grows about the bigness of a man's waist. The leaves resemble those of Yi Bei in shape, size, and color. The flower is red, and the seed a reddish brown. Unquote. Did you like that? Was that enough for you? Is that how I should describe trees? In my own words, it's a medium tree. They'll reach heights around 45 feet or 14 meters, and their leaves are like that of laurel, which is to say they are broadleaf evergreens. But I really want to focus on the flower, because the unopened flower bud is actually where we get the clove spice. The flower is small and red, but turns a blackish brown when picked and dried, and it is shaped like a nail. As in a small carpenter's nail, not like a fingernail. That nail shape is actually where we get the name clove. Its original name was from, again, Old French, Clou de Gérofle, or Nail of Gillyflower. And I swear that's the last time I try to pronounce French words, both in this episode and in the rest of my life. This clove is not to be confused with a clove of garlic, which has a completely different name origin. I believe that one comes from the verb to cleave, as in to split, like you would split a clove of garlic from the whole bulb. Also see cloven feet, like the split feet of goats, for example. Actually, now that I think of it, is the French word for nail clou from clove because nails split wood? Shoot. <laughs> the production of this clove spice is to take the flower buds while they are still closed and dry them out. Cloves can be sold whole in that nail shape or ground into powder. Clove is often seen as a holiday spice. As I mentioned, it can be used for mulling beverages, which is certainly more of a holiday time practice. But it also has its meat applications. There is this method for preparing a holiday ham that involves sticking several whole cloves into the ham while it is baked. I've got some whole cloves in front of me. Let's give them a sniff. They definitely smell like the holidays. I don't know if I've ever really used this spice outside of fall and winter months. It's somehow less floral in scent than nutmeg. I'm not sure how that works because this is literally flowers. I'm getting also more of an anise flavor. Star anise and aniseed are where we get that black licorice flavor, and I'm picking up that. What's certainly noticeable is how much more pungent the whole clove is compared to the ground nutmeg and cinnamon. And that's a consistent thing with spices. Whole spices hold onto their flavor more strongly than ground. So, by whole spices, if you want more of their flavor to come through, just be prepared to actually put in the time and work to grind them yourself when you need to use them. But the lands and plants, as I've described them, really don't include humans. And as we know, it took a lot of human involvement to bring these tropical island trees to your plate at home. Let's throw that variable into this equation and see what kind of stories we end up with.
In a very similar fashion to the stories of the cinnamon and peppercorn trades, we can thank Arab traders for creating a global demand for the treasures of the Spice Islands. I've talked a lot about these Arab traders, but I haven't really explained who they are. Here's a bit of an oversimplification of their story, since I'd rather not drag you all completely down the rabbit hole. First off, referring to them as Arabs, while historically common, is itself an oversimplification as to what their culture and place of origin was. Arab is of course referring to the Arabian Peninsula, also referred to as the Middle East. In the modern day, we see it taken up by a few big countries, namely Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman, Iraq, and a few other smaller ones along the Persian Gulf. These countries don't even really represent the different cultures that exist in this region today. Those borders were drawn up by two European dudes after the Ottoman Empire fell over a hundred years ago, and trust me, they did not have the locals' best interests in mind when they did. But I'm not going down a geopolitical rabbit hole. So, of the various societies that existed on the peninsula thousands of years ago, the so-called Arab traders that made big bucks from trading goods across the Indian Ocean were likely either the Nabataeans, who lived in the northwest near modern-day Israel, or the southern Arabian peoples who lived near modern-day Yemen. Or perhaps some combination of the two. We aren't actually sure about that because, at some point, they were conquered and their cultures were replaced and overwritten. But we do know from archaeological studies that these were the two wealthiest societies in that region, around the time the Arabs were in control of the spice trade, and they seemed to have the most seafaring resources. And when they were in power, they were the primary mechanism for the exchange of goods, technology, and culture between Africa, Europe, and Asia. It was essentially one of the earliest forms of globalism, and all of the cultures that I've mentioned developed the way they did because of the resources that were traded between them. It's interesting to think about how each continent would have developed instead had these Arab traders not created a web between them. And for so long, they were able to maintain this web themselves because they acted very conservatively and approached their practices in very clever ways to hold onto their wealth as much as possible. They did things like keeping the sources of their goods secret from their buyers, using mystique as a means of creating a monopoly and adding to the value of their goods. And they really did their best to keep to basic merchant practices. They didn't try to conquer or enslave the places where they got their goods from. They used their resources to corner the market in a very specific way. They also didn't overextend themselves. When it came to obtaining goods from the Spice Islands, they usually didn't sail all the way to Indonesia. They would meet other travelers halfway in India, where they were already picking up cinnamon, black pepper, and other goods. Though we see the influence of these merchants over long stretches of time, they really reached a prominence in the Middle Ages, around 1100 to 1440 CE, when much of the known world was amassing wealth prior to the Black Death. Europeans were advancing in technology and naval power, and the Arab traders tried to dissuade them from seeking the sources of spices, warning them of sea monsters and other mythical dangers. But eventually, the Europeans began their search, despite the threat of danger. The Portuguese were the first Europeans to reach the Spice Islands in 1521. We'll start with their discovery of nutmeg and mace. Within the Maluku Islands, there is another smaller island cluster known as the Banda Islands. This is primarily where you would find the most common form of nutmeg, known as round nutmeg. But what the Portuguese found were very smart farmers and traders who had been cultivating these trees and selling their goods for a long time and these farmers and traders were not ready for their system to change, and they managed to force the Portuguese away. Later that century, the Dutch also found their way to these islands. 
and they were a bit more confident in their ability to change these islanders' system. There's actually a few different ways history is told in regards to how the Dutch took control of nutmeg production on the Banda Islands. The first version I heard comes from a terrific book called The Drunken Botanist by Amy Stewart. This book is all about the science and stories behind the plants that we've turned into alcohol and is an absolutely fantastic read with classic drink recipes included. In her telling, the Dutch discovered that these islands were ruled by various chieftains who competed with each other in their trades with the Arabs. So the Dutch made treaties with each chieftain, promising protection from the others in exchange for a trade monopoly. The Dutch ended up having some trouble protecting every tribe from each other. So they simply killed as many of the natives as was necessary and enslaved the rest. Upon further research, I found another telling of this history. In this situation, these trade deals still happen, but instead it was the Bandanese that went back on their deals by continuing to trade with other outside nations or even trying to attack the Dutch to get them to leave or break their deals. And the Dutch retaliated by killing as many natives as was necessary and enslaving the rest. It almost seems like the different versions compete on whether or not the actions by the Dutch were justified, but since genocide and enslavement are never really justified, I don't think it matters. The ending of those stories are consistent though, so we at least know how things end up. Even now that the Dutch had full control over nutmeg production in the Bandas, they weren't able to hold onto a global monopoly. For two reasons. Number one is that there was another variety of nutmeg grown elsewhere known as long nutmeg that was able to be traded while the Dutch were being jerks. And number two, there was a pretty successful system of smuggling round nutmeg out of the Banda Islands to be grown elsewhere. It was mostly taken to Eastern Africa, and even today as much as 80% of the world's nutmeg supply is produced in the country of Tanzania on Africa's east coast. Whew, what a fun journey this spice has been on. Let's go and see if the clove did any better. Clove at least had a very interesting early history. It was actually very popular in the upper echelons of Chinese culture as early as 200 BCE. Like I said, whole clove is very fragrant, and these flower buds are very small, so they were often held in one's mouth to eliminate any bad breath. In fact, it was required to do this if you ever spoke to the emperor, because the emperor should never be smelling bad breath. Basically, just popping a tic-tac whenever you need to talk to someone important. But between then and the Middle Ages, it has much the same history as other spices. Arab traders brought them hither and thither and hid their sources by telling fantastically scary stories. But eventually, Europeans figured they would try their luck anyway, and the Portuguese found the clove tree first, growing across the Ternate Islands. And again, the natives did not want Portugal there. But Portugal really wanted a win, so they tried using force. This made the Ternate Island sultans very, very mad, and they shoved back hard forcing the Portuguese out with their tail between their legs. And just to rub salt in the wound, the sultans told the Portuguese that they would be making monopoly trade deals with the very next European country to come along, and then the Portuguese could deal with them. You guys, guess who the next European country to come along was? That's right, it was the Dutch! Fresh off a hot genocide, they roll up in 1605 to sultans who were weirdly eager to negotiate a trade monopoly. The Dutch were a little caught off guard at first when they made these deals, but as time passed and they got their wits about them, they remembered they were European, and that nothing would do short of a total monopoly. 
Here's the thing though. Unlike the situation with the Banda Islands, clove trees were more widespread than just the Ternite Islands where they had made their initial trade deals, and they simply couldn't go around killing and enslaving people, they literally just did that in the Bandas, and that was a lot of work. They simply didn't have the resources. But they found another solution. Instead, they traveled to those islands outside of Dutch control and cut down or burned every clove tree they could find, so rather than overstretching their reach, they simply increased scarcity of the product. That's just basic economics, right? This is obviously a very bad thing to do, but it's actually worse than you may realize. You see, on these islands, it was a cultural standard that when a child was born, a clove tree was planted for them. And this human's fate was spiritually linked to the health of that specific tree. So if that tree was exceptionally productive or unproductive in a given year, that was supposed to foretell how the year would go for that person. So how do you think these people felt when the Dutch showed up and killed all these trees? I'm sure if I met a Dutch person in real life that they would be rather pleasant and we would get along great. I've heard that Amsterdam is a truly wonderful city. But when I think about the Dutch, I can't help but think about the dark history that is the European involvement of the spice trade in the colonial era. Then again, I remember that I'm from America, and I am familiar with America's history. If there's a lesson to be found in the clove tree, um, I think it's forgiveness, maybe? <laughs> So while all this is going on, clove production started to be outsourced. In the modern day, Indonesia is still the number one producer of the world's clove supply, but there are also large productions in eastern Africa, just like nutmeg, as well as islands across the Indian Ocean. But in the eyes of colonial Europeans, what's the point if you can't have a total monopoly? Spices have a long and typically very dark history, and I did warn you. I do hope you forgive me for covering these atrocities in somewhat sarcastic tones. For me, a nice splash of cynicism keeps one sane while studying the colonial era. But these histories all start with these trees. Trees that define a people and give them the opportunity to make themselves wealthy and improve themselves as a culture. Not that those two qualities necessarily go hand in hand, uh, but you know what I mean. These trees have led explorers to sail to distant lands just so their leaders could control their production. Just about every spice and herb has an incredible story to tell, and I would tell them, but unfortunately I have limited myself to trees. Ignoring the black pepper, of course. There are actually still more spice trees that I didn't cover, seasonings that are perhaps more obscure to the western palate. Sometime in the future, maybe I'll do another one of these, when I'm ready to crack open colonial history again. And maybe I will talk about other famous seasonings, even if they aren't trees. Plants like Capsicum annuum, the pepper plant with 50,000 varieties, and the source of cayenne, chili powder, paprika, jalapenos, bell peppers, and so much more, all the same species. Or maybe the absurdly expensive spices like saffron and vanilla and talk about why they cost so much. What are your favorite seasonings? What flavors make every dish better to you? Salt and pepper, maybe a dash of cinnamon or a sprinkle of nutmeg, maybe something else entirely. The flavors you love come from the earth and they likely have more of a story than you originally thought. Next week is my final episode before I switch to a bi-weekly schedule because I won't be around and I have to schedule them.
instead of talking about a specific tree species, I am going to be doing a Q&A where I answer questions that have been sent in by you, the listener, and you still have time to do so if you're listening to this on release week. And I'll be reflecting on the first 25 episodes of this podcast and looking forward to what the future of this project may look like. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their stuff on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. Wherever good music exists, they are there. My cover art is by Brittany Burnett. Find her incredible photography on Instagram at BoomerangBrit. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at MyFavoriteTrees and get updates on future episodes and extra goodies. If you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. <laughs>